before you this morning, trusting you. We come before you seeking to find every ounce of satisfaction in you. Seeking really to to do what we've just sung about, to to truly rest in you. Or that word rest uh, just makes me think of so many things. This week has been a busy week in my life. I trust that, no doubt for many who've come this morning, that's been the same. And yet this morning we find ourselves in your very presence. A place where the busyness stops, at least for a moment. A place where the hustle and bustle can slow down and we can sit and rest in the joy of what you are. Rest underneath your word as we open it and study and hear from it. Rest in the fact that you are the one who supplies our each and every need and provides for us ultimate satisfaction in all things. We live in a world, Lord, that has all week long dangled before our faces things, pursuits, goals and ambitions. And the world says, follow us, we'll satisfy you. And yet every one of them turns out to be a hollow satisfaction. What you offer to us this morning is true satisfaction, true joy, true pleasure, true love. It all flows from you. So this morning, collectively, Lord, we gather in your presence and we together turn our faces toward you, looking to you to find such things. We pray that you would just pour them over us this morning by your Spirit, that we might sense your love more than ever, that we might be... That we might smile under the joy of your very presence. That we might rest in it today. That as you speak to us and as you challenge us, Lord, we would be lifted up. That we would be drawn near to you. Lord Jesus, that we would see you more clearly today perhaps than we've seen you before. That we would regard you truly as God in flesh. The God of all gods. Come to us to save us, to redeem us to offer us eternal life and everlasting hope, joy and pleasure, eternal and unspeakable. I'll give us a glimpse of yourself this morning as we open your word, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of John, chapter 5. Oh, and you can be seated, too. you have to stand up for the whole sermon today. John chapter 5, we're giving attention to verses 31 through 47 today. Well, I want to welcome you this morning to, to the courtroom. I mean, you didn't realize you came to court this morning, did you? You thought you were coming to church But what you've actually done is you've you've come to a courtroom this morning because that's where we find ourselves in a courtroom. And you know what happens in a courtroom, particularly in a criminal courtroom. Cases are tried. Criminals are brought before the jury and and a case is laid out against them. There's a a prosecutor who who accuses. And there's a defense attorney who who presents a defense. And there's a judge who ultimately decides the verdict. Well, you've come into a courtroom this morning and there is a case that's going to be tried in front of you. There is an alleged crime that has been committed. There is a suspect who's been 
apprehended and confronted concerning the crime. Witnesses are going to be called to the courtroom this morning to provide a defense. And evidence is going to be laid out. And at the end of it all, you're going to be left as the judge to make a decision. To render a verdict. Not a verdict in a a public sort of a way, but a verdict in your own heart. There's a verdict that's going to be laid out. And you'll decide this morning, one way or the other, what you think. You won't be able to walk away without making a decision. You'll decide one way or the other. Whether there's guilt or whether there's innocence. Whether the case that the defense provides is a valid case that's true or whether it's not true. And the way John lays this out, he says that the, de- that the decision you make, the verdict you render in your heart, everything rides on it. Everything is riding on the decision. Your eternal destiny rides on the decision. Everything that's most important in your life and your life beyond this life rides on how you determine the outcome of the case this morning. So what is this case? Well, there's a crime, and the crime is this. The crime that's been alleged is the crime of violating the law of God. Violating the law of God. That's the accusation. Someone has violated the law of God. They have violated particularly God's laws concerning the Sabbath by performing a healing on the Sabbath. And not only that, the, the accused has incited other people to also violate the Sabbath because the one that he healed, he commands to take up his mat and walk away, which also violates the Sabbath. So we have an accused person who's committed, against, committed uh, of, of crimes against God and inciting others to violate God as well. The accusers. The accusers are the religious leaders. They're the religious experts of the day. They're the experts in the law of God. So if anybody had a right to accuse somebody of violating the law of God, it would certainly be the ones who bring this case because they're the experts in the law of God. We'll meet them. If you've been tracking with us for a few weeks, you've met them already. John refers to them as the Jews, but they are the religious leaders of the day, primarily made up of the Pharisees. So who's the suspect? Well, the suspect in the case is none other than Jesus Christ. He is the suspect. He's the one accused of violating the law of God and inciting others to do the same. And he's the one that is being put essentially on trial. Now, it's not a trial in an official court. It's a de facto trial. The official trial will come later. But this is a precursor. It's a preliminary trial, if you will, that's going to set the stage of what's yet to come. And the accused, Jesus Christ, is going, to, he's going to present a defense this morning. And his defense against the crime is simply put this. I am God. That's my defense. I'm God. I wrote the law. I made the law. You may be an expert in trying to understand the law, but I wrote it. I understand it better than you do. And not only do I, am I God, and not only did I write it, but in my very being I define it. I am the law. That's the defense. That's the defense. And you're the judge. At the end of the case, you see, Jesus is going to present, he's going to present it a case. He's going, to, he's going to call witnesses in his defense in this case that John records for us today. And you're going to decide at the end of this message this morning, what do you think? Is it a valid defense? Is he, in fact, God? Did he write the law? Does he in and of himself, in his person, define God and therefore have the right to do as he pleases? 
You'll decide that this morning. And that's the context that John gives us in the second half of chapter 5. Now, in case you haven't been tracking with us, let me just give you the the quick uh, one-minute rundown of what's gone on here. In the first part of this chapter, Jesus walked into a location called the Pool of Pools of Bethesda. It was a place where a bunch of sick uh, and invalid people were hanging around because they believed when the pools miraculously bubbled that the first one got in would be healed. So there were all these sick and invalid people there. Jesus walks into this place. He walks through the crowd of invalids. He walks up to one particular man who's been there 38 years, and he simply asks him, do you want to be healed? And the man explains to him his condition and how long he's been there and what the problem is. He, he can't move. He can't get to the water fast enough to be healed. He needs somebody to help him. And Jesus says to him, simply get up, take up your mat and walk. And the man does. Remarkable. He gets up, he picks up his mat, and he walks. And this miracle takes place, and John gives it to us in, in, in really succinct sort of uh, brevity. He doesn't give us a lot of details. He just tells us what happened. And quickly this man gets up and he walks. And, 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 and very quickly he's confronted by the religious leaders. Very quickly. They, these guys are like, they had like built-in law radar. If somebody violated the law, it was like a little red light went off in their head. You know, woo, 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 there's somebody breaking the law. And they went out and they found him. So it didn't take them long to see this guy. There's a dude, he's carrying his mat. It's the Sabbath. Go get him, boys. And that's what they did. They went after this man. What are you doing carrying your mat on the Sabbath? You're violating God's law. They confront him. The religious police. And what does the man do? He sells out Jesus. What else would you do? Hey, it's not, hey, the guy that healed me told me to do this. Not my fault. We followed that story a couple of weeks ago. Jesus is identified as the culprit. They come and confront him. And the confrontation is described in chapter 5 by John. Uh, it, and, and the way John gives it to us, it's helpful to interpret this, to know this, that John isn't concerned with chronology here. He isn't giving us the step-by-step of how all this played out. He's giving us the general, the general idea of what happened. So you don't want to look at what's going on in chapter 5 as, okay, this happened, and immediately next, and then immediately next. Probably this confrontation took place over a period of time. Uh, we don't know what period of time. John doesn't give us that. Um, we, we get a sense in verse 18 that this is the case when John writes that this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. What you don't know from the English is the tense of those verbs that are in that, whatever that color is. Um, I thought it was yellow, gold, but whatever it is. Those verbs that are translated seeking, breaking, and calling are all in what the Greek, the Greek tense is, the imperfect tense. It doesn't mean anything to you particularly, but it indicates kind of ongoing repetitive action. So what John is telling us in phrasing this this way is he's saying all of these things happen, and, and this was why the Jews were continually seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he continually, what, breaking the Sabbath, but he was also continually calling on God as his father, making himself equal to God. So this isn't a one-time event. John is saying this is an ongoing dispute. And they have an ongoing situation. They're continually seeking after him because he keeps on breaking the law, keeps on saying that he's equal with God. So this is what's going on. So we don't know how long of a period of time John's talking about here. But we know at some point along the way here, Jesus presents his defense. And we got... 
Pastor Frank gave us the first part of that, verses 19 through 30. And, and he begins his defense by simply saying, listen, I'm one with God. You can't discern the difference between me and the Father. When you look at me, you're looking at him. When you see my works, you're seeing his works. When you hear my words, you're hearing his words. There is no difference between the two of us. I am him in front of you. The difference is I'm now visible, whereas before you couldn't see. And he makes the case that he's one with the Father. And then he begins to call some witnesses to verify his claim. And that's where we pick up this morning. The, the part of the trial where the witnesses get called to the defense. Now, interesting note here, in the Old Testament, the law said that in order to present a defense, there needed to be at least two or three witnesses. Now, that just makes sense, right? Even in a courtroom today, in our sort of a culture, somebody's committed of a crime, there needs to be likely some witnesses. You know, one guy might be a liar, he might have some agenda. You know, if you have a couple of witnesses, that's a little better, right? It's a little, little, you know, have a little more confidence that you're getting the right story, the real deal, the accurate, unbiased sort of a, of an accusation. So the same was true in Jesus' day. And, and Old Testament law required at least two witnesses. And if you had three, that was even better, you know, to make the good case. That's the backdrop of this. And so when Jesus makes his case that he's God and he brings forth his witnesses, he's not going to bring two witnesses. In fact, he's not even going to bring three witnesses. He wants to make sure that they get the point. So he brings four witnesses. And this morning we will see those witnesses as he brings them to us. And they're all witnesses that are witnesses to his claim in his defense. I am God. I'm God. Now, an interesting note that I'm going to point out here at the beginning, and you're going to see this. I'll point it out as we make our way through this. Um, as Jesus calls his witnesses, he does something that's, re- that's really, really I- incredible. He turns this whole trial around, and at the end of it, see, at the beginning of it, you think Jesus is on trial and he's presenting a defense, but by the time we get to the end of this passage, guess what? Jesus is going to be vindicated, and guess who's going to be on trial? The accusers. Jesus, as he presents his defense, he indicts his indicters by providing the defense. And I'm going to give you a quick summary. Let me just show you this so you'll see it as we track through. This is kind of how this tracks out. These are the indictments that Jesus is going to lay out. You're accusing me of violating God's law. Let me tell you where you stand in relationship to God. You've never heard God. You've never seen him. And his word is not in you. You're unwilling to believe because you don't want to. You don't have the love of God in, in you. You, recu- you refuse to receive me, and you stand condemned not only by me, but by Moses. Now, those are some pretty serious indictments. He's accused of making a sick guy well on the wrong day. And his accusers are guilty of these things. That's the case Jesus makes. And so he calls witnesses to make the case. So we're going to look this morning at the four witnesses. Let me just uh, call your attention to verse 32. We'll come back to this. This witness is actually a fifth witness, maybe, depending on how you want to look at the passage. But in verse 32, um, Jesus begins to call witnesses. And he says this, There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Now, he mentions this witness here, um, but he doesn't mention who the witness is. Now, who do you think is the witness he's talking about? Shoot at me. Take a guess. We're going to get to Johnny. Name's him. 
God the Father. He's talking about God the Father. We'll see this in the context. He comes back in verse 37 and 38 to this idea. He introduces it here, moves away from it, and comes back. So he's going to introduce to us God the Father as a witness. I'm not going to call him witness number five, because I think the idea that John is conveying here is that all of these other witnesses are actually also Witnesses for the Father. That the Father is the ultimate witness to the fact that Jesus is God. And God is presenting all of these, the Father is presenting all of these other witnesses. And as they witness for Christ, they're actually witnesses sent by the Father. So we'll come back to that idea as we get there a little bit later. Um, so let's look at the courtroom at witness number, number one. And the bailiff brings in none other than John the Baptist. Verse 33 through 35. Listen to what John the Apostle tells us. You sent to John, and he's borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So witness number one, this guy's no slouch. This is John the Baptist that comes into the courtroom here to testify on behalf of the accused. Jesus says, you want a defense for the fact that I'm God? Let's talk about witness number one, John the Baptist. And he, and he gives a little aside. He says, I'm, I'm telling you this, not to just poke a finger in your eye, but I'm telling you this so that you'll believe it and be saved. Did you catch that? I'm telling you this so you might be saved. You need to believe these witnesses. And John is the first witness. Now, he says, you sent to John. What, what's going on here? John was... John. John the Baptist was this remarkable forerunner for the Messiah. We've studied him earlier on in our study of the Gospel of John. Uh, John came as this odd character who was unlike anybody in his day. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets, but he came uh, as the prophesied forerunner for the Messiah. And he had one job. He had one ministry, and that was to prepare the way for Jesus. That was his whole ministry. It took place primarily around the Jordan River. And John is, is saying things that Jews have not heard in forever. He's saying things like, the Messiah is coming. It's close. He's near. Later on, he says, he's walking among you. And if you think in terms of being a Jew of that day, that's exciting news. They've been looking for a Messiah for centuries. They've been waiting for a Messiah for centuries. They've been longing for the Messiah for centuries hoping and praying for this Messiah. And here comes John, this eccentric sort of a guy, and he's preaching the Messiah's coming. And I'm here to tell you he's coming. He's near. He's close. Get ready. That was an exciting message, and it caught attention. It caught attention. And people came to John. They flocked to him, to his ministry, to hear this message that the Messiah was coming. And people were ready for the Messiah, or at least they thought they were. And it created all sorts of energy. And even the religious leaders were buying into this. They were, they were being drawn to John too. They were listening to John's preaching too. They were getting caught up in the whole hype of the whole thing. I mean, after all, if the Messiah is coming, you can see what's spinning in these guys' heads, right? If the Messiah is coming, we're the religious leaders. We need to get out there and meet him. He's going to be happy to see us. We're going to be the first ones he wants to see, I'm sure. Because that's what religious hypocrites think. And that's what they were. But they went out. And John the Apostle tells us, So you sent out to John, but John is born witness to the truth. And you remember Jesus saying about the truth. He said, I am what? The way, the truth, and the life. Jesus saying, look, you went out to John, but John actually bore witness of me. That was John's whole ministry was to point to me. 
John bore witness to me. You received John, but you're rejecting me. That's the case he's making here. John's mission was to bear witness to Jesus, to point to him. John chapter 1, the apostles already told us this. Verses 6 and 9, he says, introducing John the the Baptist, there was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came as what? A witness. In order to do what? Bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone who's coming into the world. See, John's already told us, this is John's, this is the, this is the Baptist mission, to bear witness to the light. And he says it in this, in this same passage another way. He says, he was a burning and shining lamp, right? Burning and shining lamp. It's another way of saying, he's not the light, but he's the guy who reflects the light. He's the guy who shines the light so you can see it. He puts it in your face so that you can benefit from it and be drawn to the light. That's what John was. But I'm the light. I'm the truth. And everything John was doing was pointing to me. And if you had really listened to John the Baptist, you would be right now doing what? Receiving me. But you're not. But you're not. John chapter 1, verse 29. Remember this? The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes one who ranks before me because he was before me. Do you remember John saying that? That was, that was John the Baptist. That was his testimony. I'm not the light. This is the Lamb of God. This is the Messiah who's come to take away the sins of the world. That was John's whole message. And Jesus is bringing this right in the faces of these religious leaders. You flocked out to John. You embraced John the Baptist. But John's whole message was about me. And if you really, if you really believe John's witness... You'd be embracing me, not opposing me right now. Do you see it? Do you see it? It's brilliant. These guys are in a corner. They're stuck. John was incredibly well received. Listen to this. Mark chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Mark records this. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And look at this. All the country of Judea and all Jerusalem. What were they doing? You said we're all? That's a lot of people. It's not like a handful of people hung out by the river. Everybody was flocking to this guy. And they were being baptized. And they were confessing their sins. And people were flocking to them. And the religious leaders were in the mix. And they were, John tells us here, you were willing to rejoice in him for a little while. Right? They celebrated John right, probably right up until the point where he said, hey, you, you're a bunch of vipers. Yeah, probably that was the turnoff point, I would think. Um, you religious leaders, what are you doing here? You vipers, um, that probably soured them a bit to his message, but it didn't, it didn't minimize John's impact among the Jews of his day. Even in spite of some of those harsh things he said, they still, these religious leaders still received John the Baptist as a prophet from God. They still regarded him as that. He was received, he was revered. And even, the, even these religious look at Luke chapter 20 for, for, for a minute, verses 2 through 6. They're speaking to Jesus and they say, these religious leaders, tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. And Jesus answered them, I also ask you a question. Now you tell me, was the baptism from John of John from heaven or from man? Uh-oh, tricky question. And so they had to, they had to huddle, you know, they had to phone a friend. They had to get in a huddle and discuss it for a minute here. They discussed it. And here's what they said. Now if we say that John's baptism is from heaven, he will say, well, then if it's from heaven, why didn't you believe in him? Good point. 
But if we say it's from man, what will happen? All the people will do what? They'll stone us to death. Why? Because they're convinced that John was a prophet. People, the Jews, had received John as a prophet, and they had so bought into his message that even if these guys hinted at denigrating John, they were afraid they'd get killed. That's how well John was received. And so here is the, here's the indictment that John the Baptist, that this witness brings to the courtroom. You received John, but you rejected me. The one to whom he pointed every moment of his ministry. I'm not the one that's in the wrong here. It's you. It's you. You believe John was a prophet from God, but you've rejected his message that I'm God. That was John's whole message, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's God. That's the message of John, and that's the message he brings to the courtroom. Your Honor, here's the point. I'm John the Baptist now, in case you didn't know. Here's the point. He's God. He's God. And boy, these religious leaders are in a pinch here, aren't they? Because here's the one that they've regarded as a prophet saying Jesus is God, and they've got a choice to make. What do we do with this? We can't say he's a prophet and now reject his message, can we? That's exactly what they did. And so the first witness is an effective witness for the defense. And he becomes an accuser for the prosecution, doesn't he? Well, Jesus doesn't end there. Let me just make a note there. Let me, let me suffice it to say, there is a way to receive a preacher and reject his message. Can I just say it that way? I think these guys are an example. There is a way to embrace a preacher and to love a preacher and to regard a preacher and yet reject his message. That's exactly what they did with John. They loved John. They regarded John. They revered John. He was a prophet, but they rejected everything the man stood for. And, you know, there's a tendency to do that in the world today. There are people who follow preachers and follow pastors and are, are, are church people who, who, um, who are devoted to men, but they miss the whole message. Any legitimate minister who speaks for Jesus Christ is always one who points to him. And you're put in a position where you either have to embrace the man and reject Jesus, which isn't a good choice, or to embrace the preacher is to embrace his Savior. Any legitimate preacher of the gospel is one who's constantly doing what John did, pointing to Jesus. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Messiah. Believe in Jesus. Put your trust in Jesus. Receive Jesus and be saved. That's the message of every legitimate preacher. And it ought to be such that we make it so difficult for you to like us and not like the message. You either have to take us in the message together or reject us both. I'd rather that be the case. But it's just a warning against following people. That's the first witness. The second witness that comes into the courtroom. Witness number two, verse 36. Jesus calls the next witness. And the witness is an interesting witness. The witness is his works. Here's what he says. But the testimony I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Now, John did a lot of stuff. John was a great witness. I mean, he's, that's a pretty incredible witness. This prophet, he verifies my claim that I'm God. But let me tell you something. I've got a, I've got a better witness than John. My works. I've got, I've, got a whole, I've got a whole satchel here of things that I've been doing. And all of these things point to the validity of my claim that I am God. And it's interesting. Jesus calls these things works. The word there is a general term for just general things. But what Jesus is really referring to is what? 
There's a sense in which he's saying everything I've done points to the fact that I'm God. But he's pointing particularly to, what do you think? What happened by the pool of Bethesda? Miracle. These miracles. And he's done tons of them. I mean, at least, at least three dozen that I know of right offhand in the New Testament. And there's uh, intimation that there were many more of those there. So Jesus done all these miracles. And all of them are things that left people, uh, you know, open-jawed. And left them walking away saying, nobody could possibly do that except God. And Jesus is saying, okay, you want, you want some, another witness that I'm God, that my claim is true, that my defense is valid? Look at all my works. Who can do this apart from God? Who can do this? It's a valid defense. But he uses the word works to talk about his miracles. And it's interesting to note that in Jesus' economy, there's no difference between a miracle and an ordinary work. It's all the same. It's not harder for him to do a miracle than it is for him to walk or to breathe. It's just his normal activity. See, for us, miracles are a break in the normal, right? That's what a miracle essentially is. It's, it's an invasion of something that isn't unusual, that's unexplainable, that, that doesn't normally happen. For Jesus, miracles are normal. What he does, he does. And whether it's healing a, a sick man or a lame man, or whether it's speaking, it's, all this, it's just all work. It's all the work. Interesting to think of it in those terms. But he says, here's my miracles. And, and, and even in, in Jewish culture of his day, uh, it had long been accepted that miracles were, um, were, were essentially God's validation stamp on his prophets. He gave them miracles, the ability to do those things, to validate the fact that they spoke for him. And to show people, hey, this is not just any old guy coming around here telling you things. This is a message from God. And you can know that because God is assigning to the message these miracles that are clear indication that that not only the miracle, but the message and the messenger all represent him. And so Jesus says, here, here's my miracles. They're undeniable. And you know, Jesus' miracles are, are unique. They're different. You know, still today, you, you watch TV and you read different things and you hear, but oh, there's miracles happening here and this, this preacher's doing miracles and this evangelist is here, he's doing miracles and come out to the miracle crusade and here's our miracle prayer cloth we'll send you in the mail. Here's our miracle water. You drink it and you know, your, your liver will be better and I don't know, whatever. You'll lose 40 pounds. Miracle. Um, Jesus' Jesus' miracles were wholly different than what goes around in our world today. Jesus' miracles were undeniable. They were undeniable. They were clear. They were visible. They were obvious. They were verifiable. And they were undeniable. The the, the junk that, that goes around under the guise of miracles... Uh, today, largely, particularly when it's being put out there by men who claim to have the power to do miracles. It, 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 it's the opposite of those things. It's largely unverifiable. It's, unvi- it's not visible to see. You know, I'm healing you. They've been, 50 people healed of their hypertension. Okay. How do I know that? I mean, they feel better today. What about next month? You know, I don't know. Um, but that's the kind of stuff you see, or sleight of hand tricks. You know, look at the leg, it's growing. Oh, actually, I'm sliding the shoe. I've seen that stuff. No kidding. Jesus' miracles were not like uh, the stuff that goes around today. They were undeniable. There was nothing that could be said to challenge them. Nothing. It was clear that the only thing that could be explain, explaining it is the power of God, and that's it. And, and, and it was even obvious to these religious leaders that this was the case. You remember back in John chapter 3 in the conversation with Nicodemus? Do you remember this? John tells us this. This man, Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher from God. How do we know that? Because, what? No one can do the signs that you do unless God's with him. I mean, this is the stuff that you do, only God can do it. 
It's undeniable. John chapter 7, verse 31, John reports that many of the people believed in him, and they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is, how could he do any more? The signs are undeniable. In Matthew chapter 11, when John the Baptist is in prison, he's dealing with some doubts. He sends some representatives to Jesus, and he wants them to verify, are you really, you know, who I thought you were? And here's how Matthew records that in Matthew 11, verse 3. John said to him, are you the one who's to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered. You know what his answer is? Well, go tell John what you hear and see. What? The blind receive sight. The lame walk. And leopards are cleansed and the deaf hear. What is he pointing to? His? Here's miracles. You want to know if I'm the guy or not? Check out the miracles. Look at my works. They validate the fact that I am he. Get this. Jesus did not do miracles in order to make people believe him. Let me say that again. He didn't do miracles in order to make people believe him. He didn't do miracles in order to attract a crowd. He didn't even do miracles primarily to meet the needs of people. This example in chapter 5 is a good example. There were a lot of people who had needs that he did nothing for. Just this one man. That wasn't what the miracles were about. Jesus did miracles primarily for one reason. To bear witness to the fact that he indeed is God. that, That was the purpose of the miracles. And he's bringing that to the court case here. He's saying, all right, here you go. You want witness number two? Look at my works. They validate the fact that I am God. And what's remarkable is even these religious leaders could not deny the works. Look look at this. John chapter 11, verse 47. Uh, We get a little glimpse of what's going on inside their inner circle. Look what John reports. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and they said, what are we going to do about this guy? By the time we get to John chapter 11, they're starting to freak out a bit. What are we going to do? What's the problem? This man does what? He performs many signs. And if we let him go on like this, everyone's going to believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away what? Oh, our place. So you're getting to see their motivation, right? But what? They, they can't argue that he's doing the miracles. What do we get? Their only question is, how do we get rid of the guy? They're not going around saying, oh, you're fake. They can't. Because the works validate themselves. And so here we are in the courtroom. Jesus says, my defense, I'm God. Witness number one, John the Baptist. He pointed to me as God. And you already regard him. What do you think? You're not buying that? How about witness number two? Look at my miracles. That's not enough for you. How about witness number three? Verse 39 and following. The Old Testament. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Now this is something. He says the scriptures are my next witness. What scriptures did first century Jews have? They had only the Old Testament, right? So that was the scriptures that he's talking about here. So he's bringing the Old Testament as as the witness here. And you've got to remember who Jesus is talking to. Who are these people? They are the religious leaders who were experts at what? At the law. But they were experts at all of the Old Testament. They, they had studied 
as a career, the Old Testament. They knew everything that they could, you could imagine about the Old Testament. I mean, they had poured over word by word by word. They, they, knew, they knew things like how many verses and how many letters were in each and every book of the Old Testament. They could tell you that if you asked them. You know, how many verses are in Malachi? How many words are in Malachi? Blah, blah, blah. That's the answer. They knew it. They could tell you what verses in the Old Testament contained every letter in the Hebrew alphabet. They could tell you every verse. They could tell you where the middle verse was in every book, and they could tell you the middle letter in every, in every verse just about. That's how much they knew about the Old Testament. And yet Jesus here says, you, experts at the Old Testament, you know all this stuff about it, and yet you've missed its entire message. Because the entire message of the Old Testament is about me. Now, that's stunning. That's offensive if you're on the receiving end of that. You're telling me, I'm the expert, and you're telling me that I've given my whole life to the study of the Old Testament, and I know all these facts about it, and yet I've missed the main point? Yes, that's exactly what I'm telling you. He says, look, you think it's in the book, it's in the words that you have eternal life. You think that it's in your theological education that you have eternal life. You think that it's in your keeping of the law that you'll be saved. You think that it's in the being moral according to the word that you'll come to know eternal life. You think that it's through the sacrifices prescribed and keeping the law that you're fine with me or with God. But the reality of the matter is you've missed the fact that all of those things that you're trying to do point to one place. Me. Me. That's a stunning claim. You've got all the parts, but you've missed where they point. All those things, he says, bear witness about me. Every one of those things points to me. The law points to me. The sacrifices point to me. The prophecies point to me. Every bit of it, the worship, the, the priest, their role, the prophet, his role, all of those things point right to me. They bear witness to me. So actually, you could say in this witness, Jesus isn't just bringing what witness? He's bringing everybody in the Old Testament into the courtroom. That's a pretty hefty load of witnesses. And think of the impact of this on these men. They were experts. They kept all the rules meticulously. The problem wasn't that they were immoral. They were extremely moral externally. They kept all of the Old Testament meticulously. And they would have thought, coming into this conversation, if there's anything that validates us before God, it's the Old Testament. We keep it to the T. And Jesus is saying, no, because you've rejected me, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament, the Old Testament that you think validates you, actually indicts you. That's stunning, isn't it? Can you imagine being on the receiving end of that? The one thing you think you got in your corner, that you think, you think when it's your turn to call a defense, you're going to call in these guys, I'm going to call them before you call them. Think, think, think a courtroom scenario on some TV drama where the court is there and everybody's in front of the judge. And, and, and the prosecution calls a defense and that, that defense person walks in and everybody in the courtroom goes, oh, we thought they were going to testify for the other side. And in comes the the, the witness. That's, that's how this would have landed on these guys. Because all of the Old Testament points to Jesus. 
Luke chapter 24. You may remember this. Jesus has walked. This is after the, the resurrection. Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus. And he runs across a couple of, of guys who were talking about what went down in Jerusalem. The crucifixion and the resurrection. Except they're confused about it. They don't know exactly what's gone down. And they're wondering, hey, we thought this guy was the Messiah. But now he's dead and they can't find him. And we're not sure. And they don't know it. But it's Jesus who comes walking up and just starts saying, hey, guys, what you talking about? Can I join in? Sure. Here's our problem. And here's what Jesus says to them. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And get this. And beginning with whom? Moses and all the prophets. He interpreted to them in the scriptures, which are the Old Testament, what? Everything concerning whom? Can you imagine that conversation? Here's Jesus walking down the road with these two guys, and he's just telling them, he's walking through the Old Testament, saying, hey, all that's about me, let me show you. In Genesis, back here, you remember in Genesis when, when the sin came into the world and, and God killed the animal and he made a covering for their sin? You know what that was? That was about me. That was about me. And if you flip a couple pages over here into the Exodus and you remember that there was this thing called Passover and you remember when God was going to kill all the firstborn children, there was a lambs, uh, uh, these lambs that were killed and their blood over the doorpost in order to, to, so the death angel would pass over them. You know what that was about? That was about me. It was about me. And if you flip over some more pages about the law, all these things in the law, you know what they all point to? They all point to me. And all this stuff about the temple and the sacrifices and the roles of the priests and what they do and going into the Holy Holies and coming out and the veil and all the pieces and parts of the temple. You know what all that's about? It's all about me. And then you go over to the prophets here and you, you start flipping through the prophets and they start talking about a Messiah who's going to become, who's going to come. And he's going to be born in, in Bethlehem and he's going to be crucified, Isaiah says. He's going to take the sins of the world and it's by his stripes that, that, that the people of God are going to be healed. You know what all that's about? It was about me. All of it is about me. It's amazing. But later in that same chapter, he's with his disciples and he says this in verse 44. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And get this, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. How about that? It was all there. It was all there. They just hadn't put the pieces together. And the religious leaders didn't want to. And we ask ourselves the question, how could people who are experts at the Bible have missed the main theme of the whole entire thing? How is that possible? It's possible because they brought their own prejudices, they brought their own desires, and their own, their own sin to the picture. And when you come at God's Word with the preconceived notions and with your own ambitions and with your own desires and your own prejudices and you look through that lens to try and see what it says, you never get the message right. That's what they did. Matthew Henry said it this way. The word of God was not in them. It was among them. It was in their country. It was in their hands. But it was not in them, in their hearts. It wasn't ruling in their souls, but only shining in their eyes and sounding in their ears. What did it avail them that they had the oracles of God committed to them when they had not seen, when they had not these oracles commanding in them? If they had, they would have readily embraced Jesus. It's one thing to have the Bible around you. It's another thing to have the Word of God in you. 
It's another. It's, an, it's one thing to look at the words on the page, or to, in your case this morning, hear them in your ears. It's another thing to receive them and embrace them. And he's saying that it, these guys stand as a warning to us that it's completely possible to be theologically intelligent and not know God. To know an awful lot about the Bible and to know essentially nothing about the God it reveals. I said another way, hell will be populated by people who are very well schooled in theology. Not all of them, but some of them. And that's the indictment that this thing brings. It's possible to be an expert at the Bible and go to hell. That's what happened to these men because they didn't repent and they didn't receive Jesus. And he brings the last, the last witness that he's going to bring to the courtroom, verses 45 through 47. And it's none other than Moses, the father, the founding father of Judaism. Don't think that I will accuse you to the father, Jesus said. There's one who accuses you, Moses, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. Their hope should have been set on whom? On Jesus, but it's set on Moses. For if you believed Moses, you'd believe me. Why? Because Moses wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The most unexpected witness of all. There would have definitely been a double collective gasp when Jesus says, I'm bringing Moses to my defense. Because if these men revered anybody in the world, they revered Moses. He was the author of the law, at least in their eyes. He was the, the, the great lawgiver. He was the founder of their faith. He was, he was the one that they looked to. They revered him. They idolized him. Uh, in, in his eyes, they were, they were in, in, in their own eyes, they were the ones who were doing everything they could to honor Moses. If they thought the the, the Old Testament was in their back pocket. More than that, they thought they could bring Moses to their own defense. I mean, Moses is the author of the law, and they're the experts of the law. If anybody would stand on our side, if anybody's going to stand up for us, it's going to be Moses. And Jesus said, uh-uh, Moses is on my side. My side. And not only is he on my side, but he's standing right now as your accuser. You you claim to be following the law of Moses and you accuse me of breaking the law of Moses and Moses stands at this very moment, it's in the present tense, as your accuser, not your friend. That's what Jesus says. And just as John the Baptist pointed to Jesus, so did Moses. So did Moses. And Jesus says, if you believed Moses, if you really believed him, if you were really like him, you'd believe me because he wrote about me. And he longed to see me. I am the ultimate subject of everything Moses wrote. And you are right now rejecting me. Moses is your accuser. The one, the one upon whom you set your hope is actually your accuser. Boy, he just turns the tables right around on him, doesn't he? Look at verses 37 and 38. The father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard. His form you have never seen, and you don't have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he sent. This is the capstone of Jesus' argument. If all these other witnesses don't convince you, if I could be more offensive, here's the rest of my argument. You don't know God. 
You claim to be the ones who represent God. Everything you say says that you're religious people who know God. And the way you dress says to everybody you're religious and you know God. The way you speak, the rules by which you eat, the way you wash your hands, all of that says you're super religious and you know God. But I'm here to tell you, you don't know God. You've never heard Him. You've never seen Him. And His Word is not in you. That is a scathing rebuke. And what is the evidence that those things are true? What does he say? You've not received me. Because if you had heard God, if you had seen God, if his word did abide in you, you'd receive me. Listen, let me just say this real succinctly. It is not possible to reject Jesus and say you love God. Not possible. Jesus makes it impossible here. You cannot say you love God, you're a religious person, you love God, you believe in God, and reject Jesus Christ as God incarnate. You can't do it. Any person who does that is, make, is fooling themselves. And Jesus says it right here. That's exactly what these men were doing. You, you say you love God, you say you believe in God, you think you're obeying God, but you've rejected me, and in rejecting me, you've actually rejected Him, because I am Him. We're the same. There's all kinds of groups that run around claiming to be very religious, But they reject Jesus Christ. And no matter how religious they are, no matter how moral they are, no matter how sincere they are, to reject Christ is to reject the one and only God. That's it. There's no other way to see this. Jesus is remarkably clear here. The eternal destiny of human beings rides on what do you do with Jesus? There's no no end around Jesus by saying, well, I'm I'm religious and I believe in God, but I'm not sure about Jesus. No, you don't believe in God either. There's no other way. So here's the summary argument. Here's the summary argument. You received John the Baptist as a prophet. You celebrated him, but you don't believe what he said. You received my miracles and you know that they're true and you validate them, but you deny what they mean, that I'm God. You search the scriptures. You love the scriptures, but they all point to me and you reject the message. You love and you revere Moses, but you know what? Moses points to me and you've rejected me. All of these are my witnesses. All of these are God's witnesses, the Father's witnesses, but you refuse to receive it, and there are two reasons why you reject me. And get these two reasons, because here's the main application. Two reasons why these men rejected Jesus. Two reasons why men everywhere reject Jesus. Two reasons why if you're here rejecting Jesus, you reject him. Number one, they were unwilling. Number two, they loved themselves. That's it. It's it's quite simple. Number one, they were unwilling. He says it so so clearly in verse 40. You refuse to come. Or the, the NASB, you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Why were these people condemned? Why is it that they were so, 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 so blind to reality? Because they were unwilling to receive Jesus. They were unwilling. They, just, they simply did not want to. They did not want what he brought to the table. They had in their minds that the Messiah was coming and he was going to be this glorious victor who was going to lead the nation out of captivity and back to its glory and that they were going to be his right-hand men in the cabinet of his government. And when they saw him come as meek and lowly and humble, headed to a cross to be crucified and to die, they understood, they were smart enough to figure out that if he's going to be humble and meek and, and go to a cross to be crucified, then if I'm going to follow him, that's where i got to go. I'm going to have to die to myself and I'm going to have have to die to every one of my own personal ambitions and humble myself and submit to his lordship. And they said, no way, no way. We will not do that. 
I am not willing to do that. They loved their sin. They loved their religious sins. They refused to die to themselves, and they refused to submit to anybody else but themselves. And those are the same reasons why people reject Jesus today. They refuse to submit to anyone other than themselves. They refuse to die to themselves and live for someone else. And they love their sin. If you're here rejecting Jesus, that's true of you. You love your sin and you don't want to give it up. And so you are unwilling to come to Jesus. You love controlling your own life. You refuse to bow to someone else. And so you're unwilling to receive Jesus. You refuse to die to your own selves. Receiving Jesus Christ or rejecting him, by the way, is not an intellectual problem. It is a problem of the will. Get that, please. Rejecting Jesus is not a problem that's that's in the mind. It's a problem that's in the will. You can argue people with intellectual facts all day long, but at the end of the day, if they're unwilling, they won't come. And there's no fact that you can present that will convince them. And if you've ever gotten into debates with people who are in this condition, you will find that to be true. And these guys that, that, John, that Jesus is confronting are just that. There is no, Jesus could have brought a, a million uh, uh, witnesses into the courtroom and none of it would have been enough. They were unwilling to receive it no matter what came. And you know, lost people are like that. People who are willing, unwilling to come to Jesus won't believe no matter how much evidence you present to them. The only reason people die and go to hell is because they refuse to believe Jesus. It's that simple. Matthew Henry said it this way. The only reason why sinners die is because they will not come to Christ for life and happiness. It's not because they cannot. It's because they will not. They will neither accept the life offered because spiritual and divine, nor will they agree to the terms on which it's offered, nor apply themselves to the use of the appointed means. They will not be cured for they will not observe the methods of cure. Why do people die and go to hell? Because they don't want to come to Jesus. They are not willing. They refuse. That's it. They're unwilling. And perhaps you're here this morning and you're unwilling. It's a sad state, really. Because the reality is that as sinful human beings separated from God, we can do absolutely nothing to contribute to our own salvation. And when you tie that with an attitude that says, I can't do anything to save myself, but I'm also unwilling to come to the only one who can, it's a sad state. There's no hope. There is no hope beyond that. Your only hope is in Jesus Christ. And I challenge you this morning, why are you not willing? Why are you not willing to come to Jesus? Why are you refusing Is it because you're unwilling to die to yourself? You just love yourself so much? These guys, he says you receive glory from one another. You love other people to to think well of you, and so you refuse to die to yourself? Is it because you, you like to control your own life and you're afraid or you simply don't want to bow to someone else and have to live by their rules? I don't know what the reason is for you, but I'm praying for you this morning that God would give you a heart that's willing where right now it's not because that's your hope and it's your only hope. Jesus turns the courtroom around, doesn't he? He 
turns it around. And he presents a defense that is absolutely convincing. If you're looking for evidence, you need no more evidence than Jesus presented in this court case this morning. The Old Testament, Moses, John the Baptist, his works. If you're looking for evidence, there's your evidence. Jesus is God. But if the issue isn't evidence, it's just will. And I'm praying for you this morning that your will would be changed. And that you would want what right now you don't. Because that's your only hope. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, uh, we're, st- we're stunned by these men that, that are confronting Jesus. We're stunned by them. We, 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 we can't understand how it's possible for them to have so much evidence and to walk away from it. We can't understand how they could be face to face with you and not see who you are. We can't understand how they could know so much about your word and yet be so far away from you. We cannot understand how they could revere and honor men like Moses and John the Baptist and yet miss, entirely miss, that those men lived for you and they pointed to you. And yet it is a stark reminder of the sadness and the dreadfulness of unbelief, of willing unbelief, of having a will that is bent against coming to you submitting to you, honoring you, confessing our sin to you, and crying out to you to save us. Underneath it is pride. Underneath it is rebellion. Underneath it is a desire to live my own way and do what I want, and live how I want, and sin how I want, thinking that somehow there's glory in that. But you stand before us today, Lord, every one of us, And you've presented your case. You are God. And in you and in you only is life found. And there's no way around you to obey God. And you've presented a convincing case, Lord. So now it's in our court. We have to decide. Do we believe it or not? There's only two sides. To be with you or against you. Indifference isn't an option. So I pray for my friends who are here. Lord, I pray particularly for those who walked into this room in the same condition as those religious leaders, unwilling to submit to you. Open their eyes that they might see. Give them a will where they don't have one. Give them a desire that they've not previously had, that they might run to you today. We pray it in your holy name. Amen. Holy name. Amen. Holy name. Amen. We name, amen. We name, amen.